Hey, FinTech friends. Welcome to this week's episode with Simon Taylor, my special, special guest. Honestly, I love this episode and guess we're in for a treat. We cover so many different things. You know, me and Simon Taylor, I feel like we both get very personal about who we are, what makes us who we are. But then we always kind of in some way relate it back to fintech and philosophy and um, just every different concept. Like I really enjoyed this conversation. And I think as our guests and our followers of this podcast, you are going to enjoy it too. So yeah, let's go. Today's episode of Hey Fintech Friends is sponsored by Brax. Brax is a financial stack created for founders by founders that helps startups optimize their finances at every stage of growth. So you've got that first investor check in hand, but you need a place to put it to work. With Brax business account, you can safely store, move and grow that cash. And as your business scales, Brex corporate cards, reimbursements and automated bill make life just that little bit easier. Founders, don't spend all day worrying about where your money is at. Get back to building when you use Brex, the financial stack that scales with you. To learn more, visit brex.com slash BTP. That's B-R-E-X dot com slash BTP. I'm good. I just moved country on Sunday. As you do. As you do, exactly. So um, just settling in. I moved to Lisbon. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Could you feel the jealousy? How is that? Oh, I think it's a good move, personally. Um, Yeah. It's sunnier. It's cheaper. Although it's getting kind of expensive. Like I was going to say, it's like, it's the new hype, isn't it? Yeah, everyone's moving in. Yeah, and it's like it's funny, right? Because it's like, oh, I'm British. I managed to like move to Europe post Brexit. Like I've achieved something, and then you realize, okay, no, actually, a lot of people are doing it um, yeah. as they should. Because um, yeah, because I think because I was like, okay, I have to do the whole visa thing. I, that would obviously put a lot of people off, but you can do it if you want to do it. You get there you, wow, you can totally make it happen. You can get a visa. You can drink vino verde. You can be yeah. in Lisbon. You can be living <laughs> that life. All right, what's the best food you found? I gotta know. Do you know what? I know this sounds ridiculous, but pers- oh, it's so funny. You're interviewing me. I love it. Um, I know. I, 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 know I sounds- like food and <laughs> I like Lisbon. So what's there not to love? <laughs> I know. Do you know this sounds really ridiculous? Because I've mainly been like buying food and like cooking, which I, I love to cook. It's like my passion. But mm. I just think the quality of like fresh produce is better. So like. Oh vegetables taste better vegetables have flavor like i'm eating a carrot and i'm like ah this is what a carrot should taste like do you know what i mean do you know that you just don't get that at british supermarkets and they've like ruined it and it's the default in a lot of the continent of europe to just have really great produce and it makes everything taste so much better you don't need to do anything to it you just like cook it and maybe add a little bit of salt and wow yeah, because the because I no honestly like I think vegetables in the UK just taste like water. Like there's yes. no actual flavor to them, and it's really sad that like they're <laughs> they're also expensive. They're not even cheap that we're talking like you know what I mean. We're not talking about like bottom of the barrel. It's like you going to like a good shop trying to get the best vegetables, which you have to search through like terrible produce anyway, and mm-hmm. then you get it and it tastes like nothing, and you have to over season it because there's oh, no you flavor. go to some organic store and you pay way above the ridiculous. Odds just you shouldn't be something. paying that much. No, not for vegetables. 
It's, it's wild, isn't it? We're living that life. Well, so thanks, thanks for making some time to chat, though. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're just living that life in Lisbon, and you're like, yeah, I'll still record a podcast with this guy stuck in the UK, being really jealous of you. So you know, it's, it's fine. well, I appreciate you, you should, that. you should, you should come to Lisbon. You should come and move to Lisbon. Like the let's rest find of us an Brits. excuse. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be busy later this year, so if we can do it in the next few weeks, that's going to be ideal. Because uh, <laughs> child, child number two is due in November. That's why I've got a bit of a no-fly edict. I'm, uh, right. I'm at base camp. You know, I'm, I'm hanging out in the UK, trying to avoid too much travel before that comes along and, okay. you know, and life gets wild, you know? Well, congratulations on baby number two. That's Thank exciting. You. I'm I'm super excited. The I mean, if the first one's going to be a tough act to follow, she's beautiful <laughs> and weird and wonderful and Aww. has completely changed my life. So, yeah, I mean, I know as a parent, you're supposed to love your kid. Like, that's kind of essential. But it's really, really weird how it just changes your biology on such a guttural level that you mm. are drawn to this person that now suddenly exists in this whole other way. And it resets all of your priorities in a complete flip upside down. Um, not to accidentally quote the Fresh Prince, but um, it, it really has. <laughs> That's such a nice way of like looking at like parenthood, though. That sounds yeah. so cute. Everybody it's, talks about the tiredness, and the tiredness is real, definitely. Um, and everybody tells me that, like, two is it's not linear. It's exponential. Like, this stuff gets mm. harder. And I'm like, okay. Uh, but if I'm at base camp and I'm about to go to the summit, I'm going to enjoy this little golden moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have some fun with it. And then, uh, then I'm going to hit it. Because, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. Yeah, it is hard. You definitely, like, have to divide that time that you would have watched Netflix is just gone. You're either sleeping or you're doing the bit of work that you weren't able to do. Or you're doing, like, your personal time is just gone but the other side of it of just this little contact buzz you get from hugging your nobody talks about the contact buzz like you mm. hug this person and it's like holy crap if i could bottle that and sell it then i'm sorry but like that that's that would sell outsell anything the drugs <laughs> companies can do like that was that's better than booze or anything this this it's amazing yeah. well i'm gonna say like something weird but you know like <laughs> okay this does sound quite bizarre Babies, like between the ages of like newborn to, I'm going to say about six months. Oh, I'm with you. They smell I'm, I know where amazing. you're going and I'm with you. They smell just, so good. <laughs> it's like weird stra strawberry milkshake sort of goodness baby smell. And yeah, it's, I love it's it. probably, uh, newborns especially, there's not a lot to them, really. There's no personality till they start smiling, <laughs> except that smell, you know? The smell. The smell <laughs> is so good. <laughs> Bottling that, that's what needs to be bottled. All right, let's I work would... on it. I mean, I, I fear for the lives of many babies and how the process of creation there, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how we're going to do it without like disturbing babies. Like, I don't know if there just needs to be someone over the top. Ethically room, like, sourced, responsibly Ethically. sourced baby smell. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you could just like spray it in rooms. You know what I mean? Like some sort yeah. of home sense. That'd be great. That, that, we need to make that happen. Let's do it. <laughs> okay well if in you know fintech you can move it i don't know what that category would be health tech not really home tech i, I don't know um I mean, what's that going to add to the gdp of the internet like take that collison brothers if you if everything smelled like there was just a fresh new baby up in here and you just <laughs> there's new life <laughs> <laughs> the smell of new life it, it's, do you know it's like how some smell. people listen to like uh the background of a coffee shop for productivity mm. 
I mean, people are weird. So yeah. I mean, you stick this on Etsy. I think I think I think it'll take off. I, just, I think so. Like, people have honestly, people have sold weirder smells, like Gwyneth Paltrow. You know mm. what she sells? People That's, have sold. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, people have bottled things, and so people will buy it. People buy things. People have very specific interests. I'm, I would buy it. So clearly, there's a market, <laughs> <laughs> and you would buy it too. But like, you don't have to buy it because you're having a child. Too. Yeah, I was going to say it, w- it would be a smidge redundant. Although the other side of it is the other smells that come with kids. Like, there's mm. there's that whole side of just yeah, yeah. That's when I give them back. Yeah. I'm just there for the good smells. When I smell something else, I'm like, oh, I think you need to go back to your mom. That's my policy on dogs. Love dogs. Love giving them back because I don't like every all of the other admin that comes with it. It's just, Mm. yeah, there's there's a lot of hair on things. Even with the ones that don't shed, there's a lot of smell on things. Whereas like a human baby, generally I can clean up their mess or there's some sort of nappy situation I can kind of deal with. And also... Like the contact high is so much higher. Like, don't get me wrong. Uh, having a dog in London is a public service. Whoever's doing that, you you know, like a dog on the tube is just a wonderful thing for everybody on that that tube line. Like, I, I totally disagree. No, you're not a dog person. I am not a dog person. So for me, I'm like, why is this dog there? Whilst everyone else is like, oh my God, a dog. I'm like, yeah. oh, please don't come near me. Did please you, don't touch me. Did you grow up with them or not? I did not grow up with them. And actually, I've only stopped my fear of dogs at my big age, um, maybe like this year. Wow. Did you, <laughs> yeah. did you, did you have like a bag of experience or were they just always distant and scary looking things? I don't know. I remember. So as a kid, I used to go to Hungary a lot. And I do remember like being in the village, like we used to go to like the village and, I, and everyone had dogs and they don't just have like, you know, in the UK, I guess people just have like dogs as pets like in yeah. Hungary back then like people have guard dogs they have like farming dogs they ha- like they like they have different dogs for different purposes and I think it's just I, I think that's where maybe my fear came from because I just remember like walking around like the village and like like being barked at or like running from a dog or something like that <laughs> and I don't know I think I think but I can't actually remember like actually anything terrible happening I just remember like being in spaces where dogs were scaring me, especially guard dogs. They used to freak me out so much. Like, you know, there's like, like a fear in printing age. I think it is toddler-ish, where if something scares you during that, it becomes a fear. And yeah. It imprints on you. Like, I, I see it with uh, people and spiders. Like, I, I just, like, it's Yeah, spider. and I've never yeah. understood people's, like, fear of spiders. I'm like, what's it doing to you? It's, like, it's just there. And so, but yeah, if it's your the same. fear imprints on that. Like, if you go, "Oh my god, I'm scared of that thing," yeah, then at, at a very young age, it becomes this like visceral fear. Yeah, I don't know if it's like um, something evolutionary that you know, when we were tribal peoples, we were working together, and then the threat would come into the local community, and the local community would react with fear, and the toddler would go, "Oh god, that's scary." I know it is because everybody else is panicking around me. So I'm going to imprint that that thing is scary. Like it's just, yeah. Well, yeah, it's like you get all your emotions, like good and bad. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's the same as like when you, when something just makes you happy for no reason. Right. And you're just like, this thing makes me so happy. I just like doing it. All that comes from the age of like zero to seven. Cause that's like when you sit in your child chair. And so like when you can't explain your emotions, like positive and negative, it's all from the age of like zero to seven. Um, so Yeah. 
I do not know. I mean, I'm male, so I don't know how to explain most of the emotions I feel at most points anyway. Um, so, so, like, there's that side of it. But, yeah, like, that sort of uh, – this thing is passing through me. Um, I've been a really grumpy all day and then not realizing why until about halfway into the day. And it's, yeah, it's sort of having to go back and backwards rationalizing that. Probably does come from that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, like, if you can't – if you don't – if it makes you angry and then you – don't even can't explain it that's your child if you're thinking about like this makes me angry and I know it's an irrational feeling that's you sitting in your adult chair because you're like able to exp oh no it's sitting in your teenager sitting in your adult chair is, is is being able to be like because this thing happened then that's why I feel this way Ah, okay so uh <laughs> child is um have feeling can't articulate it teenager yeah. is uh, awareness awareness of feeling Adult is awareness of feeling and root cause of feeling analyzed. Uh -huh. uh -huh. Exactly. Yeah. Look at that. <laughs> I learned a thing today. This is, this is wonderful. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> it's well, just like it, the tiny bit of stuff that I've like read about and stuff, which I think just makes sense to me. I'm like, oh yeah. And when people, when you see people who get like, I remember like a friend who's when she talks to like maybe certain people in her family, she's so emotional. And I'm like, and I told her, like, you don't ever speak to me that way. Like, you've never spoken to me, like, the way you speak to, like, you know, certain people. And I'm like, it's because they take you to a place that I, like, I wouldn't, we, I, would, I could never take you to. Like, your anger comes from something really innate and deep and young. Um, so that's why you even have the capacity to talk to those people that way, but you would never talk to me. And I think, and, and same with me, like, I can think of times where I'm, like, angry at certain people, but I have never displayed that emotion towards other people because they just... Don't, there's no context to take me there. I did uh, quite a bit of therapy in my early 20s. So I had, uh, here's a life moment for you. I had testicular cancer age 23. Um, uh, it's fine. I mean, I was so lucky. I caught it super early. I didn't have chemo. So what I really had was surgery and an identity crisis. And the identity crisis was actually a lot, lot harder than the health crisis, right? The health crisis is like, oh, look, I'm done. I had surgery. I'm kind of fine. Um, again, for anybody out there listening, get checked. Um, I went to three doctors who all said, you're fine. And it was the fourth one who said, no, you're not. Like, we need to get you in. So persist with your healthcare provider, please. But actually, uh, it was the identity crisis of being in your early 20s and like, hey, Simon, it's weird. You're not chasing girls anymore. Hey, Simon, you're weird. What's wrong with you? And it was all of that, which was giving me this anger response that then when I went through therapy. We went through the causes of like, uh, you know, sort of what creates these anger responses and triggers in you. And then where have you learned that behavior? Because cognitive behavioral therapy, understand the cognitive, understand the behavior. And the cognitive is typically, uh, I'm unable to meet other people's expectations. Oh my God, I'm a people pleaser. So always unable to meet other people's expectations, always feeling overwhelmed. Um, response from anger from that actually came from step-parent, step-dad. Uh, my therapist described it as being like, what you've done is you've taken a Polaroid picture and you've put it into your top pocket. And when you experience a certain level of stress, you pull out that Polaroid picture of how somebody demonstrated how to cope with that level of stress and you blow off steam. What I want you to do is figure out how to slow down. Um, and so there are a couple of techniques we can learn. And one of them was recognizing the urge and being able to manage that urge. So he said, do you have a favorite food that you can't resist? 
And I said, well, yeah, obviously it's a boost bar. Have you ever eaten one of these things? They're amazing for if any boost. Yeah. If you've not eaten a boost bar, you're broken. I'm sorry. Just, just point out. They're just out <laughs> of this world. Uh, that was my thing as a kid. Now I, c- I could take or leave them, but he said, all right, get it, eat it. Um, take the first bite and just leave it in front of you and stare at that thing and do not touch it. Can you demonstrate your control over your body's natural urge? Can you prove to yourself that you have that control? There's almost like an experiment of your ability to control your urge. And then from there, once you can control the urge, now you're buying time to choose how you want to respond to this moment. You're developing almost that muscle to and that strength to go, oh, I'm feeling this. I really want to grab that. I really want to respond this way, but is that appropriate for this person in this context or can I deliver something better for them? And so that sort of control of self was a was a really important lesson for me. Um, and so that was a personal story. Um, I, I definitely see it in other people as well, but it's, it's amazing how the combined set of lessons there really, really taught me that I did not understand my emotions at all. And I think most men can get into their 20s and just be like, I'm just I'm just sort of bumbling through life, ping-ponging off one thing to the next thing without realizing what the hell's going on with me. You know, like that's... I mean, if, if anything, Lotus, you know, like Lotus Biscot? Yeah. If you put that, like, I have zero self-control. Like, I will eat the whole biscuit really? thing. So I don't think I would be able to do that. Like, I literally... <laughs> I've even tried before like that's why I don't buy it because I don't I can't control myself have you been on a delta flight like across the US the little oh do they give you the little ones they give you the little ones as one of their free snacks and I'm always like oh I just have to say no and just it's the best way and have you tried the donut like Krispy Kreme they're they're insane I I, I'm not I don't even eat gluten and I will eat gluten just to eat the donut (laughs) like that's how bad it is I have I don't have control but to your point earlier like I think I mean I don't know it's a growing theory that I've just coming up I'm coming up with but there's something about the age of like post-university like 21 22 where (laughs) basically everyone has breakdown and like doesn't know what they're doing like you get maybe you, you finish university you get a job everything's going like in theory like well like Nothing is actually wrong, but everything is wrong. Yeah. And like, it feels a bit like, am I going to do this for the next 60 years? It's, it's a known thing. It's called the quarter life crisis. <laughs> it really is. It's like the quarter life. If you're going to live to sort of, uh, I guess, yeah, like 80, so 2021, 20, 22, quarter way through your life. Who am I? What am I here to do? Oh my God, I'm not in school anymore. Oh God, I haven't got a job. What's my career trajectory? You know, it's it, it it's all of those things wrapped into one whilst being like, woo, I'm having so much fun. And still, still in that teenage keeping up appearances, like I've got to put on a front. But not, and then not quite figured out the adult thing, which is like, I'm, I'm just me. Yeah, but it's like you get your first job and they start sending you stuff for your pension. And I'm like, oh, like, <laughs> like of course, great. Like, it's great. Like, oh, I, I work somewhere that gives me like a private, pre- you know, like amazing, I guess, for, 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 for Helen, like 60 years from now. Um, but even just the fact that like, in a way, the trajectory is essentially saying, now that you've finished university, now that you've got a good job, do this. And then when you're, when you're 50 years later, we'll reward you by like giving you this like pot of money that may or may not be there. And so. <laughs> Welcome to the beginning of the treadmill, Helen. You are going to be on it for a very long time. Yeah. And then I think I'm a millennial, right? But I'm like, just 
at the cusp of it, right? But I think actually the generation of millennials are the people who've, who've experienced this like quarter life crisis. It might be different for like Gen Z and like they might have their own struggles. But I think it's just like when you think of like the financial crisis of the, at that time, how that affected people's mentalities on like jobs, on loans, on just so many things when it comes to that. And I think um, it just made... It just made things feel a little bit hopeless when you finish university. And I paid nine grand for university as well. I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum on the millennial side. So I just sneak in. Um, so in 2008, this was the middle of the financial crisis. I just had testicular cancer and I'd taken a voluntary redundancy from the job. So I left school at 16. I'd been working for eight years and they gave me a year's salary. So I've got like a year's salary I'm not showing up to work every day. I've just had this health crisis. I've got this identity crisis. All the jobs I want to get are not available anymore because like, there's a financial crisis going on. Like, I think that, um, that moment for a whole generation of people just robbed them of like, whoa, this, this like, tech world, this finance world that was here is just kind of gone. And you're, you're just like a rug pull moment well and truly. It's, it's confusing as all hell. And yeah, I think it's, it's kind of taken a long time to pull out of that and now now i turn 40 next year kind of like okay getting my act together finally you know it's taken a it's taken a while yeah yeah but you had like a very traumatic experience in your early 20s and me the same like i lost my dad when i was 21 and in a lot of ways i mean obviously i can't relate to your like having cancer but i do i can relate to like as being that age and then all of a sudden I'm like very isolated because as great as my friends are like they don't understand what it feels to be me and all these like and I guess as well when I lost my dad I was in university like basically I was just finishing university and so he dies in like a very traumatic way and then in a lot of ways the trajectory that I thought was going to happen all of a sudden I'm like wait hold on like everything's on fire and I did and I had no clue that this was coming. Like I did not expect it. I did not plan for it. But now I meant to go to work like every day and like work for like so it's so I think, you know, if I think back to myself then, I probably was very harsh on myself because I was really keeping it together. But actually, like it's kind of a big deal. I think sometimes like the keeping it together means you're not uh processing what's happened. One hundred percent. Yeah. And then I think what then happens is you burn out. And I can't think of one of my friends. In fact, I can't think of anybody I know who hasn't gone through their own sort of weird, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily have to be like my particular struggle, but like, I can't think of someone who didn't go through their own version of that and then doesn't burn out after that. Cause you ignore, you ignore, you ignore. And then all of a sudden, like, it's like a little bit older, maybe you're like 21, 22 or 22, 23. And then you're like, I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm just tired. Cause I've just been working like a dog and like forgetting to like process and live. And then people like quit their jobs, I guess. And then like do something else. I was listening to a podcast. I can't remember the guy's name. He had a theory called the fall and you can tell people who are pre and post fall. Um, cause there are a lot of people that will go through life, uh, especially the ones that, um, have gone to good schools, get a great job and then go on and have a great job for a little while. And they don't hit that moment of trauma. And and so they're pre-fall and their natural talent will carry them so far in life. Um, and the guy's thesis was like, he doesn't invest in people pre-fall, no matter how brilliant they are, because something one day, no matter how good you are, will come along and humble you. And the real question is, how do you react when it humbles you? Um, are you able to get yourself back on the feet? Because, I mean, you probably see it all the time, right? You get this young, hungry, uh, fresh out of college or university thing and you're like, oh, 
yep, life's going to get you. Um, I'll, I'll see you after the fall and I'd love to patch you up because you're super talented because there's sort of, there's all of this hunger and all of this scramble, but there isn't a like, breathe. I want to see who you are when you make mistakes. I want to see how quickly you can adapt to failure. There are, of course, exceptions to this rule and there are people who can just react really quickly and also happen to be brilliant. But screw those guys. I'm talking about most people most of the time. People post the fall of the people that have demonstrated their ability to get back up. And, and it's really character forming. Do you think that you need the fall? It's almost impossible to A-B test uh, in the sense that uh, anybody who's been through it can't not have been through it. And any and anybody who's not been through it will or won't be successful. So we we have a survivorship bias in both directions, right? Like the, there's no perfect data set for this. Um, I Framed a different way, I'm grateful for it. Um, I like who I am post-fall a lot more than I liked myself pre-fall. Yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, yeah, I, I get you in the sense of like, if I think about myself, like even like, like I would say like pre my fall I don't think I was a very empathetic person that that's something I definitely believe like in the sense of um I I was do you know I was always a confident person even as a kid I was always very confident but the reality is I had no empathy <laughs> actually that makes me sound like a psychopath uh, yeah just a, a, just, a, just a little bit <laughs> um but I, I would just say like maybe so okay here's a good example people used to talk about anxiety I'm not gonna lie I had no clue what they were talking about. I thought I did. I thought I did. But as a child, as a teenager, I wasn't an anxious person. You you put me in front of something, I'm going to talk. And so then when my dad did die, I all of a sudden I, I had no voice. I was feeling these feelings. I couldn't understand like what this was. And I was like, what is this feel? Like, what is this? This is horrible. And people are like, You're at, you've got anxiety. And I'm like, oh, this is what everyone's talking about. This is deep. Like, this is horrible. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, now I can understand something that I just, to be honest, wouldn't have understood because I didn't ever experience it. And I thought I did. That resonates. That resonates so damn hard. It really, really does. I was only child to a mother who's told she could never have kids. I am to her Jesus, you know, like I'm just, uh, wow, I'm a, I can do no wrong. Then I go to um, a high school where, you know, I was the brightest kid in a bad school. Um, you know, easy. I, I get I get A grades for showing up. It was just like you know, terrible petri dish to really test yourself in. So I got lazy, and just showing up made me. Uh, I, I would get applause, and you get blind to the applause, and you've not been humbled, and you don't strive for anything. And I didn't like that person, and I didn't know I didn't like that person because that person was striving to be more socially accepted uh, rather than to be more who they are and more get more joy from life um, in what in who they really really are. And and of course that's that's a, a an arc I think a lot of us go on. But yeah, I mean, what, what anxiety was there? I always had a roof over my head. I always had a hot cooked meal. Like I, parents, I grew up on a council estate, you know, like it was, it was, but it was always safe-ish. Um, there was, you know, like humble-ish, but God, on the wheel of privilege, I'd check almost every box there is. And so like, <laughs> I, I, what, what's to, what's to humble you? And then it takes that, I think, lesson to be like, yeah, I was not empathetic. And my, my mom always says I was, um, oh, you're very cut in love. Oh, 
Yes, I mean, I, I love you to bits, but you're cutting. And what she means by that is I would just, if something didn't interest me, I would almost shut down, almost like on the on the spectrum. I would just shut somebody up. Nope, not interested. Just walk out. Or if somebody would say my name, I'd just be like, yeah, not interested, thanks. Just rude, just downright rude. Like it was, it was horrible behavior. Well, maybe there is something there because like, I, again, I didn't go to like the best. It's actually, it was so bad. They've actually closed it down. And it no longer exists. Also because we had so many scandals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We had so many scandals in my school that I think they just were so fed. Because no one wanted to take their kids there, right? So they had to change the name and rebrand it. Um, yeah. I won't go into them because like, it's, it's yeah, it's still like, it's in the, you know, so many news stories. But But I can't necessarily say, even though I can say like, there's a lot of bad things that happen in my school. In a lot of ways, they didn't affect me. I had a great, I had a great education in a school that was trying to do its best for kids who had so many, so many different needs. Like in a city of London, so just just every you know, so many people had different had needed support and help. So like in a way, in a way, I feel like the school did as much as they could for where, what it was. But yeah, it didn't affect me. I was a smart kid. I I was like gifted and talented. So yeah, you're right. In a lot of ways, it's like a strange little dish to experiment on because I, I I was confident because I was always the best in class uh-huh. and I knew what I was talking about but in a way I'm so glad I did go to a school like that because when I went to university outside of London which was way more white way more private privately educated I then was mixing with people who never didn't number one some people even in the UK had never really spoken to black people but then also you know I went to Nottingham and to be honest most people went to private schools I didn't really have an understanding of like what it's like to go to a state school or or, the, or, or what what kind of the challenges we had compared to <laughs> the lack of challenges. So I'm a bit like, wow, in your school, I would have thrived beyond measure because in my school, there was so many, there's so many little things that we just didn't have. And I thought was, I thought were normal because that was my only, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you don't know any different. It's your only frame of reference. I, it's funny. Um, my wife and I have talked about this a lot with with our own children. Of like, we live in an area where we're a, in a really nice little village just outside of a not so great sort of part of East London. You know, from a violence and crime standpoint and an economic development standpoint. But actually, kind of love that balance where we are. We're right next to a park, a golf course, uh, tennis courts, like. Uh, but this is that's kind of like London through. But that's London, and I love that. Like that's what I'm trying to say. Like I went to school in St John's Wood. It's like one of the most affluent boroughs you could go to. However, you know, most people, <laughs> most people who went, went took their their kids there didn't live in St John's Wood because most people who live in St John's Wood take their kids to private schools. Do you see what I mean? So it's like all these like oxymorons. Like you're literally like you're literally living the schools next to like celebrities' houses and stuff like that, but also. At the same time, and you know, our school is opposite um, the American School of London, which again is like all these like you know so much affluence. But like, yeah. But to be honest, that's one of the things I love about London. I love that you can go down a road and like it's like everyone is next to each other, and you can't you can't escape it because you'll go to another city and you'll go to the poor bit, you go to the rich bit, and they're so separate that people can ignore other people's lives. London, you can't do that. You, it's literally intertwined and I think it's one of the best things. 
it's the chaos of it that's beautiful. Um, it's the it's the terrible old streets and the skyscraper and the cabbie somehow making it through with his somewhat racist views and it's like yeah, it's like ah, it's all of that. Yeah, I just love you can look like my dad. He was a civil engineer, so he really liked buildings and stuff. And he always was like, I love that you could just like look at random spot. And you can see like a church from like pre-World War II next to like a massive skyscraper next to like, do you know what I mean? You can see like a thousand years, hundreds of years of history just just by going like that. Like, and it's very unique to the city. Like, I, I can't think of many cities that have that same level of being able to appreciate the past, but also like know when to knock it down. Because a lot of cities in Europe, they have the opposite issue where Everything is old, that it's so beautiful, it's a museum. And it's really hard for the young population to imprint on that. But a lot of the capital cities, there was a bit of a competition in, the, I think, the uh, 18th century documentary, Simon, showing up here. Watched a documentary, BBC, about it once. Um, and I can't remember the name of the architect of St. Paul's, but the queen at the time, I believe, was a queen, um, commissioned that architect to build a master plan. So a bit like Paris of how it's all sort of lined on a structure. Um, London was going to be the same. It was all going to center around St. Paul's. And so this architect had built a plan for the streets of London. And you see a little bit of it around Buckingham Palace and the Mall and some of what that intended plan was going to be. And they were just going to raise to the ground a whole bunch of London, essentially between St. Paul's and Buckingham Palace, and rework all of that. And they started doing bits of it, but the, it never got finished. And in a way, I'm really glad because imagine all of the little things that would have been ruined along the way. Um, so Paris, had all of that history but there's a point during the revolution where they just flatten it all and start again so now to find paris's real history for thousands of years you've got to dig down rather than london where you've got you've got this ancient ancient bit of roman artifact being dug up in the middle of a crossrail station it's just <laughs> wild back yeah i do love that bit i do love that even though i've left <laughs> I do love that about the city. I want to say, like, going back to your full thing, I kind of disagree with you. Like, not necessarily about, like, everybody. I kind of think there are some people who just, their minds do that and the full creates, like you said, like, just a different personality. But I think for other people, they're happy kind of, like, just not pursuing that element of their personality. And, because okay, I kind of see it like a horse, right? Like, you know, okay, when you see like a I'm horse you. and carriage, <laughs> you know, when you see a horse and carriage, I kind of think there's like, this is my theory. There's like three different kind of people in the world. And depending on where you are at your life, you might be any of these people, but like you have the horse. And I think the majority of the population basically are the horse. It's not a bad thing to be a horse. Um, you know, horses have blinders on their eyes um, and you can go um, straight forward and you can go home to your horse wife and have horse babies and live a good life. You know where food's coming from. You don't need to be too stressed about like the direction of like left and right. Or you can be the man in the carriage who like can see through a 360, but now you've got the pressure of like feeding the horse. You know, you have the direction, like it's a lot to like process, but equally you can like guide other people because like now you can see everything, but there's a lot of stress that comes with that at the same time. Or you're the person in the carriage and that just means like you're very rich and like you just say what needs to happen. Have you ever heard of Plato's um, horse and carriage analogy? You sort of just described it. 
<laughs> you know, it turns out you're an ancient Greek philosopher. Uh, so Plato compared the soul to a person driving a chariot pulled by two flying horses. One horse is beautiful and noble. It wants to soar into the heaven. Uh, this horse is our finest spirit. The other horse is ugly and bad, of course. Um, and the job of the charioteer is to figure out how I how I manage these two opposing forces. Um, another way to think about that, and I've heard this described in, in books, is um, the human brain kind of similarly, the back of the brain is much more evolved than the front of the brain. So the prefrontal cortex is the charioteer. It's the adult. It's the thing that gives you the ability to rationally think. But this is an incredibly slow, incredibly weak little machine compared to the back of the brain. So two other analogies. One is when do you need to use the back of the brain? So the analogy from this book, uh, it's called The Decisive Moment uh, by Jonah Lehrer, is that when a quarterback goes to make a throw in a game, the amount of calculations that they have to do in a split second is more than the brain should be capable of. And it's physically impossible for the data to have hit the eyes to have made it to the brain and yet the quarterback still consistently makes the right decision because they're feeding in data like and they're almost predicting they're building a world model and they're predicting the way the world is going to play out which is they're basically building a simulation of the universe which is absolutely incredible the back of the brain can do things that quantum computers still can't do. Like, frankly, it's an incredibly powerful machine. Um, so sometimes you just got to rely on that, and it and it and it's, it's almost like it speaks for you. When you're in flow state, it's the back of your brain world building, and it's this incredible machine. The front of the brain, however, uh, so does it, he almost describes it as like a 90-10. 90% of the time, that's right, and you can go through a lot of your life just trusting that thing. Um, but sometimes you've got to really fight the thing. He gives one example of some firemen who are in a valley fighting a fire. And this fire is coming towards them, and behind them is a steep virgin hill. And so as the fire comes to them, the firemen one by one realize that they're not going to beat this fire. So the fire is coming towards them. So a lot of them take off and start running up the hill, except for the old captain fireman who decides to get out a match and set fire to, the, to where he's standing and then stand aside. What he's doing is he's taking the fuel away from the fire. He then goes and stands once that little bit of fire burns out and stamps it out in that one piece. And the fire comes around him and goes up the hill and kills all of his colleagues. So your natural fight or flight response to run up the hill wouldn't have worked in that moment. The world map that you've built for yourself would fail. That's where your prefrontal cortex has to take over. So that's like mastering self. And I think it is you are uh, capable of mastering self whether or not you've had the fall. Like, so I, I, your original hypothesis is, um, do you need the fall to, uh, to master self? I don't think you do. But would you want to, I guess to your point, would you want to pursue self without the fall? So where I was going was, I think the fall is a catalyst for pursuing self. It's like a forcing function and it's how the vast majority of people will discover it, but it's not the only way to discover it. And so I personally have received a lot of joy and gratitude from uh, having done so. Yeah. And, and would you say like, do you think that the fall was something that is of this generation? Or like, for instance, if you think about your parents, do you think like they've had to have a fall? Or do you think, do you know what I mean? Like, is that, is that a definitive thing that 
is happening now or has it always happened? With humanity, generally wisdom is eternal and every generation thinks they're discovering it for the first time. So I'd be very surprised if this uh, concept doesn't exist in multiple forms and that the ancient Greeks weren't discussing the exact same thing. Um, I think mastery of self is something that's been around since humanity itself. Like it, that's, that's as old as time. Um, what's not as old as time is our access to information and our access to the rest of the species and our ability to communicate it uh, more widely. So uh, a select group of pontificating white dudes in ancient Greece is very different to people having a podcast, one of them in Lisbon, one of them in London, you know, and then people listening around the world. And I think that's what's different is it's more generally available versus historically, this would have been something that was preached on a sermon that most of the people didn't understand. And your job was to give money to the church people so that the power structure remained. Now it's a little bit more, the power structure is the knowledge itself. That just came out of my mouth and I never thought about that before. But <laughs> <laughs> but I love that when that happens. Yeah. I mean, I think like it's, it's a, yeah, like you said, it's like we've like democratized information and it's, that's been something that's been happening for the past hundreds of years. Like the Bible used to just be in Latin. And then one day King James was like, let's make this in English. And that was like revolutionary. And it's the, it's the same in every religion. It's the same with the Quran and like the Quran a lot of the time was just in Arabic and like there are hundreds of Muslims. So, you know, the dissemination of information and stuff and the internet obviously is a catalyst for that. Um, would you say it's gone too far? Like now that we can kind of, you know, like when you think of like uh, uh, misinformation, the fact that like now the concept of truth is something that's debated because there's just so much information and the idea of what is right is more of an opinion or has become more of an opinion. Information and uh, has always been has been a weird thing. I, I look back at the, there's, I can't remember who said it, the Gutenberg printing press and then the reformation that follows the printing press being evolved. And I wonder if they were having the same debates at the time about the importance of information. Uh, and then society finds a new way to imbue authority onto something. Um, we went from the church being the authority to governments and laws and the 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 thing the words we wrote down being the rules rather than the people upon high being the rules and the bible being the rules so I, I, the power structure just shifted uh what's not happened yet is what the power structure shift is will it still be governments or will it be something else and that's probably going to take a well people would say it'd be tech companies right people would you know what i don't know not to get too much but like um before energy companies, as an example, were like the companies that made all the money. They were like, oh, energy companies here. Now it's become tech companies or has or is, I don't know the numbers, has become tech companies as the people making the most money. So money equals power. So they're the most in charge. And also they own all our data, which obviously like leads to like Web3 and like decentralization. But like, isn't that the whole isn't that where we're at currently in like a Web2 world? It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, the biggest fear, if you were to speak to analysts of the Chinese and the Indian geopolitics, is of American hegemony through their tech companies. That actually these tech companies run the internet, run the world, and that, that that's, uh, that's their biggest fear. And they're, they're desperate to try and create some sort of counterbalance to that in, in some way, shape or form. And, and I think India has been remarkably effective at doing so. I mean, 
if you look at um, UPI and Aadhaar and, and how it's built its own national infrastructure, it's done a really good job of defining its own landscape and how you play in it. And even to their credit, Brazil, um, you can't use picks. Um, you couldn't use picks through WhatsApp until Brazil was really happy about how the data flow works. So there are some folks getting this right. God bless them. Europeans are trying with GDPR, but um, it's, it's, it was it was re- like everything in Europe. Great intention, guys. I, I could see what you were driving at. Probably could have done, but you brought a knife to a gunfight. Like, sorry, it's not legal pros. You needed a technical standard and PICS as infrastructure, UPI as infrastructure, allows you to capture market in a way that's completely different that that I think is really, really powerful. So do tech companies run the world? The other thought that was running through my head as you were saying that was I I played the Cyberpunk uh, 2077 video game, which TLDR, Keanu Reeves, 100 years from now, uh, is a guy who runs a band in the middle of a corporate war. Um, And uh, the world has essentially uh, domiciled around a few large megacities, and these megacities are controlled by... um, I think four large corporations. One of them's Arasaka. Uh, the other one's uh, something else. And the governments are still there, but the the corporates really run the world, and everybody works for those corporates, and they've become these massive conglomerates. And obviously, it's dystopian sci-fi fantasy set in a neon future. But you can sort of see what it's pointing at, right? Like. I could I can sort of get the the lesson of history here and I can sort of see how governments couldn't push back but that whenever a force in the in nature gets so big and overpowerful nature tends to push back herself so how will nature the economy the water the life flow the incentive mechanism for the species we call finance start to find countermeasures to which as you say one hypothesis is web3 decentralization that could become a thing um we are inevitably going to need a way to trade across borders even if the world does start to balkanize we are inevitably going to want to control our own data even if it's just through corporate interests um and so there are other companies there is a long tail and whenever the long tail of countries companies individuals is not served that's where we get disruption clayton christensen's disruptive uh, uh Disruptive innovation says that disruption always comes from the edges. So the edges are not big tech at the moment. Uh, The edges are whatever weird thing that nobody thinks is important enough to really pay attention to. And frankly, right now, the only thing people think is absolutely the most unimportant in the world, completely useless, should get rid of it, is, oh my God, this Web3 stuff is terrible, isn't it? Should we we just stamp it out? Have you seen how much money people are losing on NFTs? God, it's so bad. Have you got any Gen AI, by the way? Have you seen any Gen AI? Would you like some Gen AI with that? It's yeah. Yeah, it's interesting though. I think because when I work, because I, I guess we both sort of work like you know you're around people who are in Web three. I mean, I work for a Web three company, right? So in a lot of ways, it's very. Um, you think that it's like something that people think about or like a thing, but it's a small bubble. And I think we don't want to say it's a small bubble. Even me, like I'm like, if you understood it, you would get it. Like I've drinking the Kool Aid, and I want other people to drink it. But you know. That like the average person has no clue. Like the average person doesn't under- know that we're in Web two. They just know the internet, right? And I don't. And they don't need to. They don't need to be like, this is Web two. So like, it's it's like 
in a way it makes sense, but in a lot of ways we're just so far behind like the concepts. And in a lot of ways, I'm not sure if people need to know the concepts because if, if the tech is so good, it shouldn't even be like, oh, this is web three. It should be so seamless that we don't think like NFTs are NFTs or like you don't need to know what blockchain is. Like you shouldn't actually. Yeah. I mean, you don't consciously sit there thinking, thank goodness for cloud technology that really enabled me to watch this uh, Netflix series and have Spotify. You don't sit there thinking, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful um, that mobile came along. And maybe you do a little bit um, so that I can now have a new dongle with USB-C. Like you just go, oh God, this app's really cool. I really enjoyed Angry Birds. It's the first time I played it. And it's it's always that sort of, um, everybody talks about the iPhone moment for things. Um, but I think, did what was Cloud's iPhone moment? You know, uh, social, what was its iPhone moment? Was it MySpace? Was it Facebook? But the problem with Web3 is it's, it started off on a bad foot, if that makes sense. Like NFTs, NFTs are great. Like if you think of the concept of NFTs and like not just necessarily like a picture, like there's so much utility, but the marketing has been so bad that to, to now get like a different opinion on that is just so difficult. Oh, it's got the worst branding in the world. Uh, this is, it's, it, and, and also it probably doesn't help that uh, most of the richest, um, most successful people that did well in the first run up are the most anti-establishment people in the world. Um, and good for them. You know, we need push people pushing back on the uh, the establishment. But the, the problem is um, they represent a very small minority of the human population. Most people, most of the time, want to go about their job and do things that they're, that, you know, they want to live their lives. They don't want to be... Yeah, they just, I just want to get through today. I just want to get through to tomorrow. And I've got these other priorities. I'm not thinking about uh, the nature of financial infrastructure and how central banks run the world. That's not my primary concern right now. My primary concern is paying the bills and eating this evening. You know, it's a co completely different set of concerns. And so to try and sell them on the, oh, but central banks are a Ponzi scheme narrative, every time you publish an NFT, everything has to be so Web3, I'm going to decentralize all of the atoms in all of my body, and we're not going to have any sort of prag pragmatic conversation about, uh, yes, but where is all of the money and why does regulation exist and what do, do what was it intend what problem was that intended to solve what what are because you're solving for humans and it, it's weird how like uh, web3 had this whole moment of like really really nice home pages with really crappy ux once you got into the product and then people built you know instant wallets better wallets but the problem is the infrastructure is so early it's like using a really great browser on the internet of like 1991. And people are building in, you know, I think the difference, I guess, in a, with like a lot of Web3 projects is like people are building in open space. Like Web2, it's like you, you, when, you, when it's finished, then you show the final product. But I think like Web3 takes that on its head and it's like, we're building, but we're also testing and we're doing this quite openly. But if you're from an outside perspective, if you're not in that space, that then just looks like, oh, this is shit. Like, I'm just gonna move on. Did you ever see like crossing the chasm, right? There's the 2% of uh, super early adopters, 13% of innovators, chasm, everybody else. And uh, 
where Bitcoin probably got to the innovators, you know, it pro maybe even ETH did where you've got like that, but it never really crossed the chasm into the rest of humanity. Web3 probably didn't get past the 2% of innovators. Like, God bless it. You know, it's, it's still so, so early in that world. For it to cross the chasm, it has to be 10x better than something else in their lives. And it will find a way. It will come bottom up and it will find something. But who knows what it is? If decentralized, but to your point, to your earlier point, if that's what people want, right? If decentralization is actually what the chasm want, like, and I sometimes, I don't know, because you, like you said, like every, everyone's going to find a new government, find a new way, and it's necessary. It, it needs to happen. It's going to happen. It's just life. But I don't know what that chasm wants. And I think even people who work in Web3 are, are trying to work out, like, is is that the way? Because... Equally, like, for instance, I went to ETH Barcelona and there was one talk, which generally I was like, I put my hand up to ask a question because I was like, this is like, like people talking to people, if that makes sense. They were basically talking about this city. I can't remember. It's called Ziluzalu or something like that, that they went to like Montenegro and like they basically created a city within a city and they were like just basically discussing it. Um, and I just basically, number one was like, this literally sounds like colonialism. Like you've just gone somewhere. You've, you've said like, how can we make this land better? And like, you've put up a flag. Um, but to be honest with you, like everyone, who, you know, on the stage were white people who probably, you know, didn't think about it that way. But I'm like, that's why I think when it comes to a lot of these, these processes, like they're not as diverse as you think, because you tell me that. And that's the first thing I think of. Whereas like, I don't think they were necessarily thinking like this, we're colonizing, Neither were the Connellists themselves, yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly, because I was like... They were bringing enlightenment. Have you heard of that? Like, we'll... They were bringing in enlightenment. Other than serving you, how were people from Montenegro involved in this? Um, and then they were talking about some, like, Montenegro day they had, and it just sounded uncomfortable, to be honest. But it was just more just like, you guys went to Montenegro for three months to, like, solve the world's problems. Not really sure the outcomes, but, like, do you represent society and also even me as a British like Nigerian I'm even conscious of that sometimes where it's like okay I could go and live in Nigeria and like solve Nigerian problems it's like I'm sure people have been trying to do that for 60 years I am not I'm not the brainchild they were waiting for I'm not going to solve people's problems so like sometimes we think we know but we, don't, we have no clue no, I, I I come back to like what's Web three good at that things other things aren't as good at, and it's anti fragile. Like this thing would survive a nuclear war. ETH and Bitcoin are just going to keep on trucking. Um, and so in the age of where uh, Sony hacks, Target hacks, Equifax, there's no data I can trust. Gen AI, is it creating intellectual property? <gasps> we don't know. Where did that intellectual property come from? We don't know. Wouldn't it be great to have an audit trail of every bit of data that we all agreed on? And wouldn't it be great if that audit trail was also programmable and globally available instantly to anybody in the world? That'd be really cool. And if it used cutting-edge cryptography, that'd be great. Maybe maybe this has use, and maybe, maybe in a post Maybe in a post-truth world, having some consensus around a set of facts where people who don't really trust each other in a more polarized world can come to consensus about a base set of facts around some numbers and a picture of a cat. Like that picture of that cat really does belong to that one wallet. Well, and we can all see that that's true. And because that picture of that cat does belong to that one wallet, maybe 
we could also send them a bouquet of flowers automatically and they'll get free access to every Taylor Swift concert for, for the rest of their life. But you've explained you've explained it without using any buzzwords. Do you get what I mean? That's my purpose in life. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that's that's also it, right? So like, you could explain that to anyone. You could explain this, like literally what you just said to someone in the street and someone would say, that sounds like a good idea. We should do that. Then you say like, it's crypto, it's Web3. And people are like, nah. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like, I think as as even fintech, fintech, Web3, everything has just a lot of words that could be cut out and not unnecessary. And like, if you just cut them out and just speak to like in normal language and not make it seem like it's like this crazy new thing, people understand and people are on board. But yeah. Uh, it's my purpose in life. Like push past the jargon and understand what it really means. I'm, I've always been kind of noddy in the way I understand the world. I, I guess a bit like yourself, I saw it in something you said earlier where you were describing something like classic from Plato, that like you 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 build a map of the world as a system and it just sort of makes sense to you and you don't even know why. I've kind of got a similar brain. Like, I don't know why it makes sense. It's, it's obviously that, isn't it? And then I hear all this jargon and I'm like, okay, you've just put all of this jargon around it, but you go, it, it's just that. You were just saying that. And, and then it turns out that like, that's actually a really useful skill. If you just sit and explain it in the way that's like just makes sense to you rather than you and you just ignore the jargon, you can do two things. One, you can find the people who like the jargon and say all that jargon to them and be like, oh, you like these words, I'm going to give them to you. And they're like, oh my God, you're such an expert in this. And then you go around to the other people and you explain it in like normal words and they go, oh my God, you're such an expert in this. And you're like, no, it, it's just, it was that, wasn't it? it it's just, uh, so I think that uh, the ability to look past jargon is something that most of the species lacks. It's something that is really powerful as a translation tool, but that can be learned as well. Like I've seen a lot of people take it on and that you can uh, then start to see value in things. And I think it requires some intellectual honesty as well to be able to recognize the pros and cons of Web3 and to recognize that 99% of it is absolutely scam-filled, riddled with horrors. And yet... Yeah. I think the people who like don't, like who can look past jargon are also people who can basically say like when they don't understand something. Mm, yeah, true. And I, I think, I think, it, I think it's, you know, when you're in a room and like you can ask a question or you can just say like, I literally have no clue what yeah. you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that, I think that's the only difference. Right. And like, it's hard to say like, I have no clue because you, you don't, you don't want to seem like the stupid person, but like, that's, I feel like that's pretty much it. What's that acronym mean? It's, uh, yeah, that was, was my 20s. Hand up. What's that acronym mean? You know, I, amount of people I know that start a job and build an acronym database and, and then they share it around. Like, it's 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 incredible. And I get it. Um, like, uh, in software engineering, there's this thing called regular expressions. Don't know if you've ever seen these things. Oh, my God, they break my brain. And software engineers absolutely love, like, this stuff. It looks like the kind of math Einstein does on a wall. Like, it's just uh, it's just codes and numbers, and I can't get my head around it. So I just had to ask what each one of them was. And, like, you you put a load of regular expressions together, and a software developer go, oh, that's beautiful. And I'll go, I have no clue. Quickly learned that software engineering is not my skill set. Um, but with the jargon language of the business – 
I'd always sort of get it and I could make sense of it. So you, early in my career, I'm forced to like ask this question and be the idiot in the room for my actual job, which is software engineering, but I'm picking up this other jargon and having sense for it. And I think that's true of all of us. There are some things that just come to us and there are some things that definitely don't. Uh, but uh, I remember... I also worked at a company again in my mid twenties, and it was the the girl I was dating at the time uh, who also worked in the same company. Pointed out how one guy in that one office would always uh, go, "Oh, I'm really bad at this. Can anybody help me?" And everybody really liked that person, and because they were obviously really good at what they did, they were obviously really good at their job, but they just wanted to help him. And I was like, "Oh my god, wow." Like that's counterintuitive. If you just go, I'm bad at this, can somebody help? They will help you. You don't get shunned and thrown away. You don't have to be embarrassed. <laughs> it feels like you do though. <laughs> it feels like someone's writing a book about like how silly you are. Like, or like, do you know what I mean? If that's how it feels, like oh, if I yeah. tell people that I don't know this thing, then everyone's gonna think I don't know, like I'm stupid. I think that's definitely like sometimes my thought process it's like imposter syndrome right you're like i'm stupid <laughs> like i don't know this i should i should now go in a corner by myself and learn this thing that i don't know and not ask for help until i've worked it out then oh. use someone else to verify that like whatever it is is correct the cycle time on learning when you publish a blog and people on the internet want you to be wrong is incredibly fast but it's also uh it's also like um a great humility uh, builder and a great filter builder. So you, you one, uh, people will come to you and correct you when you are wrong, which is phenomenal because you're learning and you're getting better. Uh, but two, uh, you start to build a idea of like who always thinks you're wrong, no matter what you say. Um, or and, and I think it's uh, early on your fear of being wrong is not being able to tell the difference between those two things. Um, because some of it is done with negative intent to show themselves as being successful or capable. And some of it is done with like genuine positive intent to be like, hey, man, you kind of got this wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, it's kind of goes back to the sort of misinformation thing, right? It's like, it doesn't, if someone doesn't like you, they're not going to go out of their way to agree with you. And like, that has gotten worse in politics and in, in most like Western countries. Like, it's not even about whether I agree with the specific thing you're talking about it's just like fundamentally i dislike you and what you represent so i'm not even gonna listen just hearing that sentence hurt me like i, I yeah just like the way that that friend was phrased fundamentally i dislike you i was like <gasps> oh, no, no, no I, well, I like you but um i do have a random i do have a random like question to ask that like is related to like the web3 thing though okay like, go um in this, so like, <laughs> I'm just now just talking, this whole time has just been like my gen generally, I'm just interested in the things you have to say. But anyways, um, if there was like, like a great deletion, right? Like, so I think that's the, you know, you said great Web3, book title, great deletion. <laughs> yeah. That would be a great book title. What a novel that would be. Yeah, let's write it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like if there was, cause you said like web three, the thing about it is like, it's on chain, it's never going anywhere. But in this like imaginary world, everything gets deleted. Like we all have phones, but like everything on the internet no longer exists, right? It's just like some massive file, some some, mass, some massive thing happens and there's just no data, no data anywhere on your laptops, on your phones. Like what then do you do, right? Like it, it I don't know what, even really know what my question is at this point. It's just like, like, what do we do, I guess? 
Um, this is where the Bitcoin a survivalist is absolutely fine because they've stored everything local in physical copies. They've got loads of gold. They've got guns. They've got tinned food. Like if uh, if we were ever at a point in which uh, basic utilities broke down to such a level, chances of you actually having food in a month are very very limited. So you know it. it the, the the level of infrastructure these companies have around their data centers is incredible. The last mile is a different thing, um, you know. But the scale of that hack and the redundancy you'd have to do is is beyond incredible. Uh, I did at one point work in a data center that ran the mainframe for a lot of banks, and I didn't realize the level of military planning that went into that place. Like it was a it was a national strategic. Uh, area of interest. There was an army base about 10 miles away um, that constantly had radar scanning. And one of the things it was looking at and keeping its eye on was this thing. They designed it so that you couldn't drive truck bombs into it. They had four on-site backup generators. They were connected to four different power stations. Uh, like This thing was uh, had co- reinforced concrete that went a mile into the ground. Like you don't know this stuff exists until you go see it for yourself and you happen to work somewhere like that. Like, do you ever see that scene in, I don't know if you ever watched the movie Goldeneye um, with Pierce Brosnan's Bond movie, and there's a scene where they're launching a nuclear um, missile and two people have to plug in keys at the opposite sides of the room so somebody with long arms obviously couldn't do it, um, and then they have to twist them at the exact same time. The amount of stuff like that that they had for various like checkpoints to get through this building, absolutely incredible. So I guess what I'm saying is the odds of a great deletion are somewhat limited. Um, the odds, though, of stuff you really care about being deleted forever, definitely possible. Speak to anybody who had a PlayStation 3, um, who had uh, a Nintendo Wii U. Uh, speak to anybody who had uh, the short-lived Sony movie service um, that bought films through it or that had things through that subscription. Uh, if you bought video games online on those platforms, guess what? You no longer own that. Yeah, or, or I think... Or even like, I don't know anyone who hasn't had, okay, not, well, I remember having an iPhone and just like be not wanting to back it up, not wanting to back it up, not wanting to back it up. And then like literally like two, three years of my data just like being deleted. And then just sort of being like, that was so stupid. Like, why, why did I not have that backed up? And then obviously that happens once and you never do it again. Like just pay for the backup or sort it out. But yeah, it definitely happens. And and it, that that generational like leap of stuff you care about not being available is like inconvenient to a person. It's a problem for a company. Uh, it's probably law breaking for a company. Uh, you know, it could expose them to GDPR violations, data protection violations, information retention violations. So that. Th- the the resilience and the consistency of having this global network and this audit trail and being able to store it in multiple places. Uh, one of the things Estonia does is it uses uh, its uh, guard time network uh, and its e-residency program essentially as an auditor of uh, individuals' data. And their design uh, philosophy for the Estonian residency program and the reason they can make it international was... It was an inevitable consequence that one day they might face the threat of invasion because of their geography. So they needed to be able to continue to exist as a nation digitally when their landmass was not available to them. 
and sort of like that's an interesting way to think about um, statehood, personhood, nationality, and the way the world could play out. Yeah, but I think you know, I've not worked for a government, but I I did work for the UN for a bit, and like when I looked at when the systems we were using were like from like late late nineties, like nineteen nineties. I mean, they were not good, and I think a lot of governments don't have as advanced systems as you think. They literally are using like I oh, know Estonia is an exception. Oh, hundred yeah. percent. I mean, yeah. If yeah. you want to see stuff that would make your eyes bleed, go go we'll see behind the curtain of any government department in in any country. It's it, it's it's just people scrambling with bits of paper and hoping for the best yeah, and dealing with yeah. mainframes. It and then yeah, as you say, as you as you get into um the global south, it's that times a hundred. It's if there's a filing cabinet, you're lucky. Yeah, and it's in Mr. Ro- so in Mr. Robot, I don't know if you've ever watched it, but it's really good. I mean it got a bit silly in the end, but um that does happen, right? Like well he hacks banks and then and then um his um and then he gets rid of all debt so there's just no data on like who's rich or who's poor poor and who owns who owes anything um but that just like basically becomes the catalyst of using like crypto and web3 as like a main form of like finance so it doesn't necessarily like change anything in the end it just kind of like like makes that acceleration faster the interesting thing about crypto and web3 is it's actually in its first incarnation uh, been far from utopian and being brutally capitalist um and brutally driven by power laws and brutally driven by exploitation so um the assumption that web3 equals utopia i think is extremely naive um because the problem is always humans and the problem is always uh, information asymmetry and uh information asymmetry when we have a perfect record of transactions is still a problem because i might know more about the technology i might know more about the um the context surrounding this trade and the human people involved and therefore uh, this is a bad thing not a good thing so i can bet against the market and sucker them all in so like uh humans uh incentives are typically driven by finance and finance is the incentive mechanism for the species and the entire economy so we have to understand and design these things as incentive machines uh if we want to create different outcomes for people and that's extremely difficult to do like it's extremely hard to do so you start having to think about game theory which actually weirdly bitcoin did do uh, it's probably one of the, and Ethereum to some extent, um, but it's one of the few that really thought through the game theory of what it was doing. And that's why it uses so much power because it's so ardent on its game theory, Prisoner's Dilemma, of how this network would continue to be resist, uh, resilient and continue running. But I question, like, I, I'm going to let you go soon because I realize like it's been like over an hour, but I do question just, I do question the gamification of everything because like right now right we gamify like fitness we gamify dating we gamify like everything in our lives basically like we're gamifying and in theory it sounds like great right like you know you can't you know there's people wouldn't meet the love of their life if it wasn't for like uh, gamifying dating and and so there are these aspects you know it's not necessarily a bad thing and same with fitness and stuff like that but also like 
sometimes like it's kind of like we we no longer can just do things for the sake of doing it because it's the right thing to do it removes a sense of agency it does it's like i but the assumption that we were acting as independent agents may have been a naive one anyway we were always being manipulated on some level it's just the manipulation has turned into um a form of product design rather than a form of marketing um like it or or a form of government or a form of something else like manipulation is is not unique to our generation um the gamification is one form of manipulation but it's it's uh, i think well-intentioned benevolent self-manipulation is not a bad thing uh, it's uh the i think the thing you're pointing at is interesting which is yeah but when do i get to unplug and be a bit buddhist and just kind of like become one with the universe again and just wander through my life without uh without this sense of being gamed and being manipulated and i, and I think that's a choice well, you just, everything feels unreal. If you think of, again, let's see if we talk about fintech, um, you know, it's great, like how easy and accessible most like fintech apps and stuff are. I'm not, I'm not saying that I want to go back to like, I mean, obviously I still have like my normal banks, but like, I'm just saying like, I'm not saying that's bad, but there isn't that much of a difference between that and the game. Like my niece has a Go Henry card, which I think are great. And like, it's great. She does her little tasks and she gets like money. And it's all, and she needs that because there's there's generally no point giving a twelve year old physical cash because they don't understand physical cash as they shouldn't. There's like where would she put that? What does she do with that? But at the same time, it's like there isn't that much difference between what that looks like and the interface and like a literal game or gambling or like you know the negative sides of these things that we see because they all they all look like a game. Like like what is money? Like I don't know. I'm being very nihilistic. I think I think the differences in the difference is intention. Um, so uh, Warren Buffett said the hardest thing to do uh, in becoming successful is managing emotions. The, the the way to be successful is, is, is not difficult in financial markets. It's dollar cost average on an index and keep doing it and don't stop and ignore the price. Simple as that. Compounding is amazing. Just sit there and compound and don't stop. And yet, how many people don't do it? How many people day trade? How many people get it wrong? So if you design a game to follow Warren Buffett's advice, that is, to my mind, somewhat benevolent and a good thing. If you design a game to get people to open loot boxes and to gamble and to day trade, that is a bad thing. So intention matters when you're using this this tool, this technique. Um, and unfortunately, uh, because there are commercial interests in either direction, um, there's no uh, way to enforce benevolence of design in game design. Game design is simply the the tool. It's the hammer. The hammer can be a weapon, or it can be a tool to build a house. Like, it, I, I think it's hard to blame the tool of gamification itself. Well, I, if we if we look at like dating, like let's take a, like I think like finances is a very like obvious one with where you've got like pros and cons, right? But if you look at like dating and like apps, they're great. Like I said, people that to be honest, that's the main way people meet people. But at the same time, there is this element that you could say like depending on what app it is everything is so easy everything is so quick to get like once you find a, a, a guy a girl or whatever you like yeah it becomes transactional it becomes like there's always something else you could get and I think mentally I think that's done something to, the, to this generation it becomes transactional it becomes 
I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Um, I look at uh, where I've been successful in relationships and it's always been non-related to that stuff. Good for people for whom that's not the case. Um, but, I, but I do think your your warnings uh, well taken and, and, and well, and it's an argument well made because the, there is something about uh, the ability to play to strengths that are not obvious through the app and through the game. Um, that is ca- the the resolution um, of of a human. Uh, it's much more high bit rate, um, whereas the compression algorithm of those apps is compressing you down to these small data points to te- to create the game. Uh, whereas the the best games create infinite richness with a simple set of building blocks, and they want you to continue to be on the game. So they're gonna they've got they've built things in there as as they should. That's their aim. But I think it's just even yeah, it's just even how people see relationships. Or like I have maybe this is a lot of like male friends but it's like I don't know sometimes when people break up with people they actually spend enough time like just like processing that these days I'm saying like because it's like well, I could just go on an app and find someone else oh dear god no because you can just go next yeah yeah can no completely and and also how emotion how emotionally invested is each party and how much how emotionally invested did each party think the other party was that's that's always the interesting question going on. Um, I'm <laughs> my wife is uh, interestingly the easiest mood person on earth in that she will be brutal about her intentions in every interaction. Um, I call her the velvet sledgehammer because if you look at her, she's very gentle, very soft, very softly spoken, but she'll come out and say, um, so I'm looking for this and I'd like that and uh, I'm, I'm interested in you because and uh, are you here for that? And that's okay. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. Like, wow. Like, really pleasant interaction. Can't be mad at her. But it's just, wow. Because that what she's done there is, is I think, uh, even in it, she does it regularly in a professional context, is try and fig- filter in a way that the, the previous filter that was supposed to be the filter yeah. hasn't succeeded. So it's now it's like, okay, th- these are the last bits of the questionnaire that we didn't get through. Yeah, in that the you game. didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now it's like, okay, now we can have a conversation and it's worth me actually investing some effort. But the the level of self-confidence and self-esteem that takes is so much higher when you're sitting there in person. And that's that's something I admire about her endlessly, is it's just it's bulletproof um, in that sort of stuff. <laughs> So yeah, I, I'm I'm a lucky man. Oh bless! I realised we're at an hour fifteen. Um, I'm gonna just ask you a couple, just to end. I'm just gonna ask you, like, I'm gonna go through our quick fire. Fire quickly. Okay, so, <laughs> uh, would you rather smell like onions but not be aware of it, or always smell onions? that no one can smell. Do you know, I, I could always have a nose clip, so I'm going to go always be able to smell them. Um, the olfactory sense can be trained uh, and you grow numb to smells that you are consistently surrounded by. People can't smell their own mock love, as my mum used to say. <laughs> Would you rather uh, sweat maple syrup or cry lemon juice? Oh, sweat maple syrup? Hell yeah. I mean, it'd be a bit sticky in summer, actually. Ooh. Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> but crying acid does sound like the worst of the two. <laughs> yeah. Would you rather have your Google search history broadcasted on national television or be trapped in a room with every spider you've ever killed? I mean, obviously the spider one, because 
spiders are chill. Like, yeah, I'm good with them. But the Google one, like, eh, you know, like, fine. People saw what weird kinks I was into in my teens, <laughs> fine. You know, we're all learning. I, I, I think, like, ultimately, if the world figured that out, I'm just, I'm just gonna keep on trucking. Like, I'm not a politician. So, I, yeah. Would you rather have uh, permanent cloud makeup on your face or wear a tutu every day for the rest of your life? I hate having stuff on my face, so I'll go tutu. Yeah, and your daughter will like it. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Like legit tried to offer uh, gender neutral toys, goes for the tutu, loves it. I, legit, <laughs> I, and I don't know if this is something socially reinforced by school or grandparents or anything else. Yeah, she but, just loves but it. Just drawn and to her credit, like it's twinkly. I don't know, I'll give her that. And she just, yeah, seems really, really happy at it. Trying to get it off, however, that is a whole other battle. Would you rather have to sing rather than speak everywhere for the rest of your life or dance everywhere you go? If I could dance, I would dance everywhere I go. Um, but because I, I have all of the left feet, yeah, just sing everything. I think it'd improve all of my podcast appearances, frankly. But uh, I mean, again, I, I can't really sing. No, I can imagine that you've got an all right singing. No, voice. it's it. I'm all baritone. <laughs> it works better for speaking. Uh, it. Uh, I can't. It, once I get out of this vocal range, it's not good. Let me tell you. Yeah, I mean, you do have like the perfect podcast voice or like voice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, would you rather have to navigate a blockchain maze to retrieve your lost crypto? or be stuck in a never-ending capture loop for your internet banking? A never-ending capture loop just sounds like some kind of weird punishment because it's never-ending. <laughs> so I never get to my money, so therefore I'd rather do the blockchain thing because assuming it's solvable. Yeah, I guess it would be solvable. I, th I don't yeah, think that was the intention of the question, but... <laughs> uh, would you rather be compelled to high-five everyone you make eye contact with or required to do cartwheels as your only mode of transportation? If I could do a cartwheel successfully, I would obviously do that because... Um, I mean, I'm natural. No, I'm, I'm a bit of a recluse and I sometimes accidentally make eye contact. And, you know, somebody wants a whole conversation and I, I got, I, I really need a wee, you know, like, <laughs> just let me go. Right? So, yeah. So that's the thing. Like, and I, I, those people who walk around doing like random happy high fives, woo, high five, we're doing a high five party. Great for you. <laughs> like good on you but go away like i, I yeah. got stuff to do like I'm, and i'm gonna pretend yeah. to be nice to you but also i don't want to be a dick so please leave me alone please leave me alone please leave me alone oh there's this girl she she puts a, a water bottle on her head and walks around um i think melbourne um and just like just does that like that's her thing but then people get really angry about it she said people have literally tried to like hit, hit it off her head and all this stuff it's like seems unnecessary no, it's just like it's, i mean this is my philosophy you do you uh so long as i don't have to get involved necessarily or it's you know like i want to opt into that i don't want to be have some social pressure to be to conform like generally peer pressure just really irritates me would you rather always have to pay for things using 1p coins or every transaction from now on Solely through bartering. Oh, 1p coins. Boss is hard. Boss is hard. I just, yeah. Screw it. Yeah. No, like, how many chickens is a cat worth? How many books do I need to... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think I'd be all right with that. I think I would choose that. I think it'd be fun. It'd be fun for a week. 
and then you're just bartering over a tin of soup because you're hungry. It's just, oh, just no. Yeah, but it's just you know it's a different economy. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you need a do you need a printer? I can make a cake. That's what you want a cake. I think that's the issue is I'm not good at most things except having opinions on fintech. So would you like some opinions on fintech? <laughs> no. Oh, I guess I don't eat today. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. You've got to get creative. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Simon, for coming on. This was, this was actually fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you all the time. I feel like I need you like to just like tell me like the truths of life every now and again. I, I, I think... I need you to bring that truth bomb into my life and reflect it all back and stimulate this conversation. You're an amazing host. Thank you for having me. Oh my God. I love that episode. I just feel like in a way there's nothing else to say because I think the episode speaks for itself. Me and Simon, we went on so many interesting, fascinating tangents. And I just loved having these conversations with him because sometimes you have this view of your world and like you create it you think it you're like does anyone else have these views and to have such a incredibly affirming yet challenging conversation with someone was amazing so I would love to get your feedback on this kind of episode if this is the kind of episode we should do it be doing more of what you thought was it terrible was it amazing I mean I know it wasn't terrible I know it was good um so yeah thank you for tuning in to the Hayfin Tech Friends podcast. I'm friend, I will see you next month.